0: Hello and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on today's episode we'll be discussing the Moorgate Tube disaster. This was when, in 1975, a tube crashed into the end of the tunnel at Moorgate Tube Station when it was coming into Moorgate Tube Station, resulting in the deaths of 43 people. So early on the 28th of February, Marion King, who is 20, headed off to work like any other day. She would get the tube to Moorgate to work in a job at a NatWest bank. So she headed to Drayton Park tube station and tries to get in the first carriage so she'd be near the right exit when she got to Moorgate station. However, when she gets there, the first carriage is already packed, so she heads to the second. As usual, the seats are already taken, so she grabs onto a ceiling strap as the train pulls away. So before we get into the uh, actual incident itself, I want to talk a little bit about the tube system at the time. For anyone not based in the UK or in London, the London Underground covers most of the city of London and also the outer suburbs. I know when I first moved to London, it was just so fascinating to me. The tube was just a, a modern like wonder, basically. Coming from New Zealand where you know, you had to wait like hours for a bus or something to come into a city where you could just get on the tube was just amazing. And especially even, I mean, it's totally spoiled me because I think, obviously not in a pandemic, but before this, you know, if you went to the tube station and the tube was more than five minutes away, I was outraged, outraged that I had to wait so long. So it really is something that's you know really special. It was originally started in 1863 uh, with the first line from uh, which was the Metropolitan line, and it's continued to develop and grow over the years, and it's still it's still being built consistently today. So originally the tunnels weren't that deep; the the first lines were pretty kind of surface level or just just under the surface. But then several years later, as it expanded into you know, more of the city, it got deeper and deeper, that the small tunnels that you get on the really deep lines were, it it resulted in it getting the nickname of the tube. So they were pretty tube like. At this point, when they were making these really deep tunnels, they, you know, this was like a very long time ago. So a lot of them were made without the kind of equipment that we use today. So a lot of the tunnels, the very deep tunnels, as you'll see when you're on the Tube, they're very small and they're very tight around the Tube itself. And that will be important as we as we continue to talk. So the Tube now is made up of 270 stations and 11 lines. It's the longest metro system in the world. And it has a, a very distinctive map. And and very distinctive design, Uh, and this is very much to because it is so complicated. Uh, It definitely helps you to understand where you're going and to see uh, how how it works. And even as I'm talking now, we have some some bits of the tube map framed on our wall because it's just so iconic um, and and such an amazing design. So on on the day that we're going to talk about, uh, the tube was traveling along the Northern Line, which is the black line for those of you that know. But in 1975, it was different to what the current line is. So some some of it was similar to what the current line is, but some of it was different. And so this was quite a short two mile stint between Drayton Park and Moorgate. And just before we get into this, I just do want to say that the tube is super safe (laughs) compared to most other transport methods. So this is, and even to till now is the worst disaster that's ever happened on the tube uh it's you know it's one of the safest forms of transport that you can have the main issue which is still the issue they have now is is accidents and suicides Uh, but other than that before 1975 there had only been 12 deaths from accidents on the tube before this incident took place So on the 28th of February, the trains were very different to how they are run now. So there were two members of staff on the train. There was a driver and a guard. And the trains themselves had a lot less automation and relied on the driver to do basically everything, all of the manual work. It was very physical, the driving back then as well. They had to to do a lot more in order to control the trains. And this uh, control that they had to do also included braking when they would drive into each station, uh, and that's going to become key. So on the train in question, the driver was a man called Leslie Newson, and he was fifty-six. Uh, he was known as a cautious driver. He had a good reputation within the company, and people thought that you know he was he was a good a good driver. So he arrived at Drayton Park Station shortly after 6am on that day. It was a typical uh, work day, rush hour day, and he had a cup of tea at Drayton Park with his colleagues before he headed out to the number six car, to the, sorry, not the number six, to the six car train On that day, the guard on the train with him was a man called Robert Harris. And Robert was only 18 at the time, so he was a very new guard. And he didn't have much experience on the tube network. So the first trips of the day between Drayton Park and Moorgate happen without incident. So they carry on back and forward, back and forward as as the day goes on. However, at 8.30, there were about 300 people on the six-car train pretty full, pretty typical rush hour if anyone has been the joys of the London tube at rush hour, you'll know that it is it is pretty packed, people are standing, people are in the in the uh, corridors in between, standing by the doors or that kind of thing. And that was pretty typical for for what this train was. So actually the School, which was by Moorgate Station, was actually having a day off on this day uh, because they were having, uh, for exam prep, so usually the train would actually be a lot busier and the train would usually have a lot of students on it, but thankfully, by some kind of intervention, there were no students on the train that day, which is great. So the train, the tube departed Old Street, uh, which was the penultimate stop, and then it was 56 seconds trip from Old Street to Moorgate, and Moorgate is the end of the line where they then turn around and go back. So at this point, Harris, the guard, was pretty bored, so he was kind of wandering about the train, allegedly trying to find a spare newspaper. Back in those days, he the guards have like a guard uh, station, like a little control panel and a little place that they're meant to to stay and sit, and that little control panel has an emergency brake and has other other tools that will be important. So usually between stops, uh, as some of you will know if you've been on it, the train gets up to speed, it then coasts for a small amount of time, because it is such a short amount of time between stations, coasts for a little bit, then it starts to break, and then it heavily breaks coming to a stop within the station. So as the train entered the station on this journey, it was clear that the train hadn't slowed at all. So there was no coasting, there was no uh, attempted slowdown at all, so no brakes have been applied. So it was going faster and faster as it entered the Moorgate tube station. And what's important at this point is that it was clear that at this point the the dead man's handle was still compressed. And so the dead man's handle was basically a handle that they had to that the driver had to hold down in order to drive the train. So there had to always be pressure against this dead man's handle at all times for the train to run. And so that was you know, important because it was designed to stop the train if something had happened to the driver. So if the driver died, for example, if if they had a heart attack or whatever, um, then they would release the handle. The train would come to a stop. And same if if they uh, fell asleep or if they were daydreaming or whatever, uh, then you would be able to release the handle. The train will come to a stop. And that was a pretty common tool that was used at that time to make sure that there was that safety mechanism around drivers. And so what is key at this point is that as the train is coming into the station at speed, clearly this dead man's handle is still compressed, so there is still uh, something against it. Yes, if the handle was released, then the emergency brakes are applied and the train stops. So as the train enters Moorgate, it's travelling 30 to 40 miles an hour, and reportedly was accelerating. And so Morgate was the end of the line, which means that it it has the station and then past the station, there's like an overrun to be safe. And within that overrun, there's a, a buffer and sand and, and different things to try and stop trains if, if they do happen to, to overrun. So because it was at that speed, the train ran forward directly into the overrun tunnel, hit the buffer at the end. And basically because of the speed, the six car train was immediately compressed. And so what happened is the first car that hit the end was forced up and then the second one was forced down. So basically there was a V shape between the first two cars and then the third car was wedged under the second. So it wasn't like a simple crush all all staying in one plane it was basically like yeah one went up one went down and then one went under so it was a bit of a mess and if you remember the types of tunnels that we're talking about they're very small and so it filled the space essentially the back three cars were, were fine pretty much so they uh, remained out of the overrun tunnel they were still in the station and they were yeah, still fine and in good shape so the first car, which is was normally 16 meters in length, was crushed to just 6 meters. So that's the amount of compression that we're talking about and the amount of speed that it must have hit at. And it's amazing to me that some people survived even in this first car. So, you know, people did survive all the way through the train. But even in this first car with that amount of, of crush impact, uh, some people did survive. And there was a quote from one of the passengers in the first carriage, which was, as darkness came, there was very loud noise of the crash, metal and glass breaking. No screams. All in the fraction of the second one takes to breathe in. It was all over in no time. So it just it just happened so quickly that people didn't really realize what was happening because it is only fifty six seconds between the two stops. People just expect it to to go on. It, it just it just happened so quickly. So at the time, there was a, a platform controller who would stand on the platform and and help with signaling that kind of thing so he obviously saw the crash as soon as that happened so he called head office for support uh made sure that the the appropriate authorities were called and all of that kind of thing so harris was in the back of the train the guard and he opens the doors and the three carriages at the back get out and because of the um like smoke and everything in the in the air at the time a lot of the people in the back didn't actually know what had really happened and there's some crazy stories about how they kind of just just left the people in the back that were fine just left and then like went to work and then only later on on the news did they actually realize that they were involved in this like horrific crash so a lot of them were okay obviously some of them did still need help in the back because of the impact you know of people falling over that kind of thing Harris lets out uh, a, a majority of people that can be released. Uh, and this is at 8.46. So then by 8.54, there were ambulance and fire trucks on site. So pretty quickly, we're talking, what, eight minutes for everyone to get there, which is great. Um, and so they were immediately starting to help any of the injured that could uh, get out of the train themselves. And again, even at this point, the emergency services didn't really know the extent of the incident because no one really knew what was happening in that bit of the tunnel you couldn't really see what had happened so they headed down and did a survey of what was going on to see see what was needed so when they finally assessed what what had happened they you know the emergency services went into overdrive doctors were sent from nearby hospitals they set up like a a Field hospital on the platform. There's a story where one of the doctors ran to a boots nearby and basically got all of their their major pain relief, just asked for like all their morphine, got all of their morphine, took it back to Morgate, and so they were they were ready to help. At this point, there were a lot more problems that would then come about in order to try and rescue the people that were trapped. So first of all, it was very dark. So the electricity had obviously been cut on the cars when the impact hit, but they had to keep the electricity cut as well because they didn't want to potentially start fire or anything like that. So it was very dark. There was also issues with like soot and other debris that had been kicked up as part of the crash, which meant that there was a really bad visibility within the tunnel. You know, it was dark. There was bad visibility. The tunnel itself was very small, so they couldn't really see what was going on or what was happening. And because of all of this, especially at the beginning, because they wanted to make sure people were safe, they couldn't use the the normal equipment that they would use to cut people out. So you know, like cutting people out of cars or whatever. Because you can see where the people are, it's a lot easier to use this quite industrial equipment. But they they just couldn't risk it, so. They had to use like little torches, little hacksaws to try and like get into the cars and, and prize people out of them. More issues then came uh, because the radios wouldn't work because, the you know, the tunnels are so deep, you can't get any signal down there. So it was really hard to keep communications between the, uh, the bottom of the, in the tunnel and the people up up on, on road level, which was very frustrating for them, hard to communicate to, like, the hospitals what was coming. So that, that caused an issue. And they also had a real problem with air and temperature. So if you've been on the tube, then you will know that as you stand on the uh, tube station, it often gets super windy. So it's it's very windy as the, as the tube comes in, in to stop. And this is because of something called the piston effect. And basically, in order for air to move through a tunnel system and not just become stale, it relies on the trains to move through the tunnels and to push fresh air through the system, essentially. So the air is pushed and replaced. But the problem was is that very quickly, if trains aren't running the air gets very stale and so because obviously no trains were running into the station because of this, the, the, the level of oxygen in the station was was dropping and it also got very, very hot. <laughs> um, and anyone who's had the tube in the summer will know how hot that tube gets, but it was, it was because it just didn't have that uh, release and, and refresh of air, it was just getting hotter and hotter. So it was getting almost to 50 degrees, so boiling. The environment that the firemen and the and the emergency services had to work on was was very, very difficult at this point. So the teams worked for hours extracting people and treating them. So by noon, by 12, there was only five people left that they knew they knew they wanted to save. So five people that were, they were aware were alive were were needing to come out. So that's from what, nine till twelve? So in the first three hours they do manage to get most people out. However, the five people that were left were the ones that were the hardest to access. So uh, it took another three hours to get uh, get three of them out. And so by 3pm, there were only two people left, but these were the hardest to save. Uh, There were two people that were very trapped in the same area. And unfortunately, they had to amputate one of the woman's feet um, in order to get them out. Not pleasant. (laughs) Um, But thankfully, that was... Uh, She was a police officer, actually, that did have to get that amputation. And uh, she's done some interviews and stuff since. And thankfully, she survived, uh, which is very positive, but clearly not a very good experience. So thankfully, they were able to get both of them out by 10 p.m. So by 10 p.m. that night, everyone was out that they knew of. And when they had all been removed, everyone on the platform fell silent. So just to try and hear... And and see if if anyone else was still alive. So from that point on, they determined that there was probably no one else alive on the train that they were going to be able to save. So as for Marion King, who we talked about earlier, she was one of the lucky ones. So she uh, was fine and managed to escape the train when it when they opened that that second carriage. She was taken to the hospital. Uh, she suffered from a torn ligament and a very bruised back. But for her and for many other people that were on the train, the, the real impact was obviously the mental, the mental load from the, from the crash itself. And so it would take her and, and many of the other survivors years to really recover mentally from the crash. So on the day, uh, in total, 43 people died. Uh, 74 were injured and required hospital treatment. And as I mentioned earlier, this was and still is to this day the worst disaster on the London Tube Network. So once they were certain that there was no one else left alive on the Tube, they started the exercise of of trying to, of course, recover the bodies, but also to inspect the train thoroughly to try and understand what had happened and what caused the crash. So at this point, they were able to use more intense equipment because they were uh, more certain that they weren't going to cut into anyone. So uh, they were able to cut and remove wreckage and and work their way forward. And and as they were doing this, we were inspecting the train, inspecting the brakes, all of that kind of thing, to make sure that uh, to see if the, the brakes were faulty or if there were any issues throughout the train. And it took them four days to just get to the front of the train to where the driver's cab was. And so the cab where uh, Newson, the driver, was, it was normally three feet deep and it was crushed to 15 centimetres. But it was very key, obviously very unpleasant, but very key that they examined this area. And so when they saw Newson in the cab, his arms were still at or near the controls so he hadn't raised his hands in front of his face which is something that was considered important because that's uh, obviously a reflex if you are about to walk into something or something is coming very quickly towards your face your your reflex is to put put your hands up and protect your face so uh, but he hadn't so his arms were definitely down near the controls near the dead man's handle so when they removed his body, he had an autopsy. And initial review, there was nothing obvious that indicated the cause of the crash. So there was nothing which, you know, he didn't have a stroke, he didn't have a heart attack, there was nothing like that that they could see to indicate that he had died or anything like that in, right before the crash happened. Then he did have his blood alcohol level measured, which is one of these things that has been really up for debate. His blood alcohol was measured at 80 milligrams Per hundred mil, which is basically the legal limit for for driving, but there's been loads of debate about this, about whether that was actually a true reading or not. So, because when when you die and when your body starts to break down, al- alcohol is produced. So it's really hard after because it had been four days at this point, and obviously very hot temperatures. You know, some scientists were like, "No, this was not an accurate reading. You c- you can't tell alcohol level at this point because." of the decomposition whereas some were saying no this is true he had definitely been drinking that kind of thing it it seems uh you know based on conversations with his family and and friends that he wasn't a big drinker Uh, no one saw him drink before the uh incident there was no alcohol in the train and there was no evidence like in his body of of any form of alcohol abuse so you know, he had he had a healthy liver and all of that type of thing. You can take it either way as to, as to whether you think that is something uh, that contributed to the crash or not. In my opinion, it was... Even if he had been drinking, it, 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 that's not an excessive amount. I mean, you're still at the legal limit to drive, so it's not as so, though, you know, he drank so much that he was basically comatose and couldn't see what he was doing. Blame the crash on that alcohol reading, I think, just doesn't take into account all of the other things that could have happened. With that said, let's talk about what we think potentially caused the crash and what what we think happened. So there were quite a few theories put forward and there was a big inquest at the time to try and uh, understand what had happened. So the first thing was mechanical failure. So did something on the train fail, which meant that the driver couldn't stop the train, no one could stop the train, the brakes failed, etc. So the train was examined, like I mentioned, a lot as they took it apart uh, to understand whether the brakes had failed. And trains have two sets of brakes. So they have the normal set and then they have a backup set uh, in case there are any issues. And there was, through the investigation, there was no evidence found of any issues with the train. There was no evidence found of electrical or fault issues. And, yeah, generally... I think most people are agreed that the train was fine. And so generally it's accepted that the crash was caused by the driver and not by anything else mechanical or anything else that may have impacted it. If it was an issue with the driver then, what actually happened? So first, there is the possibility that he just wasn't paying attention or had fallen asleep. Like we mentioned earlier, we've got the dead man's handle which is designed to stop the train if he had died or fallen asleep. So you've got to hope that these were not scenarios that happened. Alongside that, if if he just wasn't paying attention, so if he was just off in a daydream, right, it's generally accepted that as the train comes into the station, there's a pretty big, like, scissor crossing, which would cause the tube to, uh, you know, rumble about a bit. And so even if he was daydreaming it's it's thought that he would you know kind of snap back to his senses at that point and go back to driving the train and making sure that it isn't isn't about to crash again it, it's it's probably unlikely that he was just distracted. And generally Newson was known as like being a very careful and considerate driver. He had a notebook with him that had like all this information about like common train faults and things to consider. So I I think it's probably unlikely that he wasn't just not focused. There were I did I did see a little bit of chat online about the fact that he may have been confused as to what station it was. So apparently there was another station which was closed, and so obviously in closed stations you do slow down in closed stations, but you pass all the way through them. You don't fully break And so was he just confused and thought he was in that station, so continued on. But again, it seemed, that seems a bit unlikely to me. He'd or, this was a, like one of the last trips of the day, so he had already been driving that that line for two and a half hours. I would have thought that he would know where he was. And again, he, the train was accelerating as it entered the uh, the station. Even if it was a station that they didn't stop at because it was closed, the tubes do slow down as they pass through. So something to consider. So the next theory then was potentially that it was suicide. So there's no evidence that he attempted to stop the train it's possible that he was trying to kill himself, and so therefore he just accelerated and and crashed the wall. The crashed the train purposefully into the wall. Uh, there's, you know, I, I think I think it's really hard when we talk about suicide because it can be very unknown and and people can't see it until it happens, right? So even though his family and everyone says no, he wasn't depressed. He was fine. All of that kind of thing. It you you can never be sure can you? So that's why this theory makes it quite difficult. Uh, but yes, there was no evidence from his colleagues or family that he was depressed or, or had any plans for, for taking his own life. He, before, in the, you know, in the morning when he was having the cup of tea, he was talking about future plans. Uh, he actually had the equivalent of £2,000 on him because he was planning to go and buy his daughter a car once he got off work. Uh, and you know, these are kind of signs that you you aren't planning to kill yourself because you've got plans and you've got you know future things but like you said like like i said you you never really can know what's going on with someone right so it yeah you can take it either way i think and so then the last theory was whether he had some some form of illness of another kind that couldn't be seen in the autopsy, especially the autopsies that they did back in 1975. And obviously, his brain, like his body was pretty damaged. So even though they could tell big, big obvious things, they couldn't necessarily tell potentially smaller things. So there's the other theory that he could have been affected by some, uh, like a form of seizure or another neurological condition where the brain like continues to work, and so his body would like stay in shape but they're unable to move or make any like conscious decisions. So they're still, you know, he's still able to like accelerate the train, but he, like he's just physically unable to move or to, uh, to do anything to stop what is going on. And this may have been evidenced by that fact we said earlier around he um, didn't cover his face. And so that, you know, could indicate that he couldn't move because even if he was doing it on purpose, you would expect that reflex to kick in so so potentially this is something that could have happened where he he physically could not move and he physically could not stop the train and that is a, you know a generally well accepted theory i'd say the two main theories that people go with are, are suicide or are uh yeah that he had some kind of condition that that stopped him uh being able to stop the train so there was an inquest held straight after so in april of that year and the jury decided accidental death for all passengers and included newson in that so they thought it was all accidental death based on the evidence that was given so yeah very sad really and, and and hard that we don't really know what happened we can we have a lot more tools and a lot more ability to know what's happened now which is good So with that said, let's move on to what we learned. So thankfully, tubes and trains get safer and safer. And incidents like this teach teach us a lot and teach us how to improve safety. So the main thing that was introduced as a result of this was something called the Moorgate train controls and that measures the speed of a train as it comes into a station. So if a, if a train is going too fast into a station at a certain point then these train controls will automatically trigger the emergency brakes. So thankfully we are in a situation now where this should never be able to happen again. At Moorgate in in those areas they... um. And dead end tubes, they've they put several of these so to make sure the the train is slowing down uh, as it comes in. At any of the levels, it will it will measure how how fast the train is going and then stop the train. So that's very good. And so that's now on uh, across the train network. So trains have then obviously since 1985 become a lot more automated. I actually thought that all of the tube was pretty much automated, but that actually isn't the case. So there are partially automated tubes on the tube network, uh, which are used on the Victoria, Piccadilly, Jubilee, Bakerloo, Central and Northern lines now, which basically means that the train will do the acceleration and braking, but there is still a need for a driver to be on board for any kind of emergencies, manage the doors, and if there is any form of manual driving, they're there and available to do it. Uh, The rest on all the other lines are actually still driven fully. Manually by a driver, which I didn't realize. But the automated trains are actually still being rolled out in a few more areas, uh, like District and Circle. If you've been on the DLR, you will know that the DLR is a, a fully driverless train. So there is no, you know, you can sit at the very front of it and drive it. It's very fun. Um, uh, but there is still someone on board to to help uh, safety and if there is anything that's that's gone wrong. So. Obviously, over time, uh, by having these uh, more automation and more automated trains, that hopefully helps make us safer and safer uh, when we're on the train network. And, and like I said, you know, this is the worst incident that has, that has happened on the, on the tube network. So thankfully, it is a very safe form of transport and, you know, it's a really good option for us. So yeah, I would be very interested to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, whether you have any theories as to as to why it happened, um, or I don't know whether it's put you off going on the tube. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, maybe I shouldn't go in the first carriage. Maybe maybe staying in the middle of the tube is a safer idea. But maybe that's just me being paranoid because I make too many of these podcasts. So anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening. I'll do all of the normal stuff that I normally say, so please do uh, subscribe or or rate or whatever you do on the platform that you are using. I was looking at the stats yesterday and actually a lot of people are listening through Spotify and I never use Spotify for podcasts, so clearly I'm missing something. So thank you for those of you listening on Spotify right now. And I don't, I don't think you can rate on Spotify, but uh, just listening on there is great. So thank you. If you are on Apple, you can rate. Um, and then you can also follow me on uh, at When It Goes Wrong Pod on Instagram and at It Goes Wrong Pod on Twitter. I'm not really using the Twitter that much at the moment, but I am actively trying to put stuff on the Instagram and show uh, behind the scenes and recording and all of that kind of thing. So do give me a follow over there and do drop me an email at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com with your thoughts and with any suggestions for future episodes oh and I did also want to say first of all I'll put all the uh, references in the show notes as I always do but also if you are impacted by any of the things that we talked about today uh you know do get help for your mental health and I will put links to mental health resources in the show notes as well